in a while, God kind of puts a message on me uh, and that I can only uh, describe as coming from Him. Um, this happened at Easter this year, and it happened again this week, where it feels as though, I know this might sound weird to you, might scare you a little bit, please just give me the benefit of the doubt, but it feels as though God just kind of takes over and writes through me something that He wants to communicate to His body the church. And that's something that I have to share with us this morning. It's a message that God has been putting on my mind for months now, that He's been working me towards and others towards. It's a message that God has confirmed not only, um, not only in Scripture and, and in our body, but through people who are not related and connected, people that I don't even know have confirmed this. And so I feel compelled to share it with you this morning. And it just so happens that it fits perfectly in with what we're talking about in the book of Luke as though God has ordained it in our plan. But before I get into it, I want to confess something to you. I, as your pastor, have often doubted. I know that sounds like something that you're not supposed to admit to as a pastor, that a pastor you would think was someone that always, always has faith, always is perfect in faith, never, never wavers in faith. But I have doubted. We have been here five and a half years, a little over five and a half years, and it has gone by really fast. And while in some senses I feel like God has grown and prepared me through that time, I still in a lot of ways feel unprepared for what God wants me to do here, what God wants to use me to accomplish. But over the last five and a half years, there have been more than one occasion, times where I have felt, where I have doubted that I was the one that God wanted here. Where I, where I have doubted that, that maybe, maybe God just led me here for a season and it's time for me to move on and God has something better in plan and I find myself doubting God's call to this church. That's something that God has been bringing up in my mind and in my heart lately. Because I believe that I am called to this church. I believe, especially when I look back on how God brought our family to this church, that it was something that God orchestrated and God designed. But I also think that because it is God's design and God's plan, that there along the way have also been lots of times where our enemy has sought to plant little seeds of doubt, like you're not good enough. You're not, uh, you're not charismatic enough. You, you don't have the right personality. You, you don't have the skills that you, that you really need. You didn't go to seminary. You don't, have, you don't have the knowledge that you need to be able to lead a church. What do you think you're doing leading a church? That, uh, you know what, there's probably somebody better. And truth be told, if we're making an evaluation based on human criteria, truth be told, there are lots and lots and lots of people who are far more qualified to do this job than I am. <laughs> Thank you. But the good news is we don't just operate merely on a human level. And that if God has put me here for the purpose of leading this church where he wants it to go, then I have to lead by example, believing that even though I don't feel qualified a lot of the time, even though I don't feel skilled a lot of the time, that if he has me here, he will give me and us what we need to do what he has called us to do here. For my entire life, I have had a desire to see people, to see non-believers come to repentance. I've shared before, but as a kid, I would spend many nights 
Not a, lot of, not a lot of time, but every night as I would pray before going to bed, praying that the whole world would get saved, that, that God, would, God would bring the whole world to Jesus. And I grew up in a family with, uh, with a history of evangelism and a history of missions. In fact, my grandfather, whom I've talked to about, is one who has, a, has over 10,000 souls credited to his ministry, people who came to Christ through his ministry. And I don't know about you, but when I hear stuff like that, and, you know, and I know there's kind of probably a few groups of people, and so if this is really weird and out there for you, just kind of maybe give me the benefit of the doubt this morning. I know this sounds strange, but I'll explain it here in just a minute. Um, but there, there's a few people that are probably like, okay, that sounds awesome. I want to be a part of that. And others that are like, okay, that sounds totally freaky, and I have no desire to be a part of that. But every, every time I hear about God moving that song, we just saying is like, I've heard you move. Will you do it again? I've, I've heard you move in other places. I've seen, I've seen the testimonies, how you've used people that I know firsthand to, to bring thousands of people into the kingdom of God. Will you, will you do it again? That's something that I believe God has designed us for to bring people who are far from him right up next to the throne, right up on his lap. Do we believe he can? John chapter 7, or Luke chapter 7, verse 18, we're talking about John the Baptist this morning. This message, as I explained, was something that God has given to me to share this morning. So if uh, you will give me a little bit of grace, I'm going to read the whole thing. I want to make sure that what is said is exactly what God wants to be said. If that bothers you that I'm not looking up very often, you can just look, put your head down and listen, whatever is most comfortable for you. But I just ask that as we carry on right here before we read the Scripture, that you let God speak to you, that my voice would fade and that God's voice would come out and speak directly to your heart. Will you pray with me to that end? Heavenly Father, thank you for this body. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this opportunity you've given to me as overwhelming as it may seem at times. Father, I thank you for your promises that are always true, that no matter whether I believe them or not, that doesn't change the fact that you still operate in them. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to receive your truth, that you would speak directly to us, that you would speak through me, use me as your mouthpiece, not only to speak to everyone here, but to speak to myself as well, the message you have for us this morning. Use me as your servant to accomplish your will this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. John the Baptist, we've talked about him quite a bit as we've studied Jesus, investigated Jesus, and he comes back into the story for the last time here in this section of verses and next week. Luke 7, verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things, told him about Jesus raising the man from the dead, which Rob shared with us last week and did such a great job. Thanks so much for sharing that, Rob. Told about how, how Jesus you know, healed somebody without ever being there to heal. You know, told all of these things that Jesus has been doing and went back to John the Baptist, told these things while well, calling two of them, John... Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. God has been showing me some things lately. Things that I would say are anticipatory in nature. If you've been around here, you know that God has been moving in our midst for months now in in incredible and even unprecedented ways, where God has been aligning us with His plan for us as a church to be rooted and established in His love. And as I look ahead, I am full of anticipation for what God is going to do. I have no doubts. I have no qualifiers. God is going to do some great things in and through our church. Not because of me or any one individual, but through us as we are coming together as God's holy temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, God in and among and through the saints at 6-8 Church, God is doing and will continue to do great things. God is just getting started here, and we are all a part of that. This is not about me. It's not about a personality. It's not about a brand. It's not about an agenda. This is what God is doing, and this is God's time in His church. It's not my time. It's not our time. This is God's time. That's a very important distinction. This is his church. We are his church. And it cannot be bought, it cannot be manipulated by any other agenda than his because it was already purchased by his blood. We were bought with a price and therefore we ought to live as such. And I don't just believe this is something only for our church, but for the church that here, especially where we live in the northwestern part of the United States, God is moving. I have no logical explanation for it other than to say that God has been preparing us and other churches as I talk with other pastors, and He has been preparing those who are seeking Him, some who already believe, others who are far from God, some who may even be here this morning. God is drawing people to Himself. Now for some, probably most in our church, this is exciting, right? This is exciting news. This is, this is exciting for us. These have already been exciting times over the last six or eight months as we have seen God moving and preparing us for what He's going to do. We have seen God transforming hearts and lives in our midst, in our body. We have seen God lead people to us in ways that only He can take credit for. We have been preparing and anticipating for God to do something in our midst for years, and now the day is upon us. For those who are excited by this, what I want you to know, what I believe God wants you to know is, you are ready. We are ready. I don't know what that means, or exactly what we're ready for, but what I do know is, where God guides, God provides, trusting in Him as He leads us, We know He will give us what we need. Remember, our confidence is not in our personal preparation, but in God's provision. What God leads us to, He will lead us through. We boast in the Lord. For others, there's probably a little bit of concern and trepidation. I get it. We've heard about God moving in the past, but we've never experienced it in our day. We've concluded that God doesn't move like he once did. I've been there. I know the feeling well. I've wondered if God would or could move in our day. Even wondered if our world is just too far gone. I have despaired at the thought that God might not move on our behalf. I've prayed this prayer from Habakkuk 3.2, Lord, I have heard of your fame I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. 
We've heard about you moving in the past. We've heard about the promises that you made to Abraham. We've heard about your leading your people out of slavery. We've heard about a giant being defeated by a little boy. We've heard about a man who walked on water and came back to life. We've heard about a church that was miraculously formed. We've, we've heard about your name and fame disrupting cultures and societies around the globe. But will you do them in our time and in our context? We've heard of your fame, Lord, do it again. In our day and in our age, do it again. I believe with all of my heart, we are in fact going to see God move in our day, in our time, and in our midst. We aren't just going to hear about it from other churches, but it will happen in our church too. And if you are trepidatious about such statements, what I want you to know as much the same as for those who are ready. You don't feel ready, but God is enough. You don't feel prepared. You don't feel adequate. You don't feel you have the faith, but God is enough. If you need it to be ready, whatever it is, God will provide it for you. We're ready. But the truth is that none of us are really, really ready for what God is going to do. The only way for us to be ready is to be in such relationship with him that he is the source for whatever it is that we need to be ready. It's about him in all ways, in all circumstances, in all situations. It's about him, about knowing him. Don't hear what I'm saying, though, as some kind of strategy, like I've just been to some kind of church conference and have all of the answers. Also don't hear what I'm going to say as some sort of claim to numbers and the typical accolades that accompany such audacious statements. I am saying neither. But what God has started in us and will continue in and through our church beyond that time, even beyond our time, it will be something unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. It will be rooted and established in him, knowing him, knowing his love, his truth, his grace, his resurrection power. I do not know how, I do not know what, but what I do know is that we will be able to experience and it will be as a direct result of us knowing him, a direct result of us being directly planted in him, drawing our source from him, the vine. I'm not defining what God is going to do, as I believe it will probably be different than anything we have ever seen. Neither will I restrict what God is going to do, because I believe and see in a way very clear to me, not only has God been preparing us for this, but the world has been waiting for it as well. I wish I could share with you some of the details of what God has been showing me, but I believe they might only serve as distractions and stumbling blocks to us at this point. I may share some of them with others for the purposes of building up our faith and the purposes of preparation. But for the predominant focus of my sharing comes down to this. Are you ready? Are you ready? So this is a question God has been asking me clearly since late July and early August in many different ways, forms, and means. He has been asking me, are you ready? To which I've replied in many ways. I think so. I hope so. Ready for what? How do I know if I'm ready if I don't know what to be ready for? I want to be ready. Tell me what I need to be ready for. I think I'm ready. Now, I'm sure that I'm the only one that responds to God's messages in such a way. I'm sure there's no one else here who responds to God with such uncertainty. So you can feel free to feel better about your relational status with God because most certainly you would have responded to God in a much more confident way than I have. But just in case, just in case there might be anyone here who would respond the same way that I have, let me give you the only acceptable answer to that question. When God asks, are you ready, the only answer is yes. Are you ready? Yes. Are you ready? Yes. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. We are ready. 
I don't need to know what I need to be ready for because whatever it is that God wants me to be ready for, He's going to give me the power and ability to be ready for it. Whatever it is that God has prepared me for, He has already been preparing me for. And while I may not see it in advance, what it is that I need to be doing to be prepared, I will see it when I look back. If I knew everything I was going to need to be ready for, then what would happen is I'd probably either stop letting God prepare me and just sit and wait for it to happen, or just as bad, I would try to prepare myself for it in my own way and not let God prepare me for it in His way. Yes, I'm saying we should be diligent, we should prepare as best we know how, we should do whatever we can be doing, but we should not have the arrogance to think that we can prepare ourselves for the works God has prepared us for. Only God can do that. God will prepare us for what He has prepared for us. And He who promised is faithful. Now, Getting back to our text. Here's John the Baptist, and he's preparing the way for the Messiah. But when the Messiah didn't look like he thought it would, when all his preparation for the Messiah started to look like he had been made the fool, and now he was sitting in prison, and the man that he thought was going to be the Messiah was doing nothing to address the situation, he started to wonder if he had been preparing for the wrong guy. His situation didn't match his expectation. Are you the one who was to come, or should we look for someone else? Are you the one? Because right now in the situation I'm in, you don't seem like the one I thought you were supposed to be. Are you the one because I expected you to show up in this, this specific way, and you're not? Well, what was the way that John expected? I, I thought you were supposed to come and rule and set up God's kingdom and destroy Herod and all these other pagan rulers who were going against your will and against your design. I expected you to look like this, but you don't look like anything I thought you would look. Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one? Tell me, because if you're not, then I need to get out of this situation and go find the one so that I can prepare the way for him. Are you the one, or should, should I expect someone else? John has spent his whole life preparing the way for Jesus, but now that his situation doesn't match his expectation, he starts to wonder. Don't we all do that? Don't we all at some point question whether or not Jesus is the one? I mean, maybe you don't do that, but I have. Is he really the one or should we be looking for someone else? Even though the evidence for Jesus is insurmountable, and if you're looking for reasons to believe, believing in Jesus is the most logical person to place your faith. But when my situation doesn't line up with my expectations, I have questioned, are you the one or should I look for someone else? And now, here we sit thousands of years after Jesus has come, and we find ourselves doing the same thing, don't we? I mean, we've been told that he's coming again. Remember that song we used to sing? Coming again, coming again, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. We've been told that he's coming again. And while we're waiting, we're starting to wonder, is he coming at all? Is he going to show up like we expect him to? Are we going to be made fools of? I mean, here we are sitting in the midst of a part of the country that is literally giving God the finger, spitting in his face and telling him, we don't need you, we don't want you, get out of here. We're surrounded by depravity. Nearly everywhere we turn, we are surrounded by voices of deception yelling at us, why have you believed in a God who said he was coming but has never shown up? Why do you believe in a God who, if he was real, has stopped caring for the world and has stopped caring for his people? Why have you believed in this God who, if he ever existed, has since ceased to exist? Why do you believe? For being honest, don't we, 
do the same thing that John was doing while he was sitting in prison? Where are you, God, when we need you? We want you. We expect you. Are you going to show up? Or are you just going to leave us to rot in this hell hole? That's how John was feeling. How does Jesus respond? So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And what's the big deal about this passage? Why did Luke feel the need to include this in his story, in his narrative about Jesus? Why is it here? Well, to start, this should sound familiar to us because Jesus read from the the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, at the start of his ministry. We saw way back in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee after being tested in the wilderness in the power of the Spirit And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's the big deal about this passage? Well, Jesus is quoting from a messianic scripture in Isaiah, one that was written 700 years before he was born. Isaiah was telling about the one who was going to come, which we find in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. And this is a passage that was pointing to God's chosen one who would do these things. So Jesus says to John's disciples, just go back and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Go back and tell John, the one who was sent by God to prepare the way for me, who also happens to be the same guy who sent his doubts through you messengers to question me. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And when they got back to him, John would have known exactly what they were referring to. Why? Because when people questioned John, John the Baptist, asking if he was the Messiah, John answered their questions by quoting from the same prophet Isaiah, where he said of himself, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. He would have known. He would have known. He would have known that this is the one. He is the one. Jesus is the promised one of God. He is the one we've been waiting for. Of course, he's the one. Remember how all of this started? Even before John was born, he was filled with the Spirit, and when his mom heard the voice of Jesus' mom, he jumped in his mother's womb. He knew. He knew it from the beginning. He had all the signs. He had all the knowledge. He had all the information, revelation, and prophecy. He knew. And he had to remember back to that day when he baptized Jesus out in the wilderness, which we find in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And then John gave this testimony. I, John the Baptist, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify this is God's chosen one. He knew. He knew, and yet he doubted. This John the Baptist, whom Jesus calls the greatest man that ever lived, doubted while he was in prison. When his situation did not match up with his expectation, he doubted. Well, what does Jesus say next? Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed. Why in the world does Jesus stop here and give a beatitude? I mean, how would we treat John? This Elijah who was to come to prepare the way for Jesus. John the Baptist. How would we treat John doubting in prison and sending his disciples with his doubts? How would we treat John? Are you kidding me, John? You spent your whole life preparing and preaching and baptizing to make the way for Jesus. And now that he's here doing what you knew that he was going to do, by the way, you're doubting? Are you kidding me? Truth be told, that's how we think God would deal with us when we question Jesus. Are you kidding me? You don't believe in me? What more do you need? How could you not believe after all that I've done and all that you've heard about me doing and all that I've ever done for you? How could you not believe? And how do we think God would, would respond to this prophet John who was the trailblazer for Jesus' ministry? We think we'd expect Jesus to condemn him. But what does Jesus do? gives him a blessing, gives him a beatitude. He gives him a statement that says, if you do this, you are blessed. Are you serious, Jesus? I mean, you're sending John the Baptist in response to him sending his doubts to you through his disciples a blessing. Why in all of creation would Jesus say, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me? Well, what's happening here is Jesus is getting tripped, or John is getting tripped up by Jesus. John was getting tripped up by Jesus. What is Jesus saying here? Look, look, let's look at it. Let's dig into it just a little bit really quickly. Look at the depth and the richness of what Jesus says. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble. Other translations will say, take offense. This word means a stumbling block or an impediment, and which uh, upon another may trip or fall. A means to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. It means to get ensnared in a trap and get tripped up. It's the word scandalizo, where we get our word scandal. It means to discredit, fall into a trap, a trap with a springing device. It's also where we get the idea of slander and gossip. John was getting tripped up by Jesus. Seriously. But how can that be? As I was wrestling with this, I asked myself, how can it be? How can Jesus be the stumbling block? How can that even be a thing? How can that even be possible? Let's look back at what's happening here. John is asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? How do we get tripped up by Jesus? The same way John got tripped up by Jesus. When we're more married to our preconceived notions of who Jesus is supposed to be than who he really is. When we're more married to our preconceived notions of who Jesus is supposed to be than who he really is. 
when we're more married to our expectations of who Jesus is supposed to be than the revelation of who he actually is. You know what I mean. I mean, we get tripped up on, on Jesus all the time, right? I mean, he can't possibly be God. Why? What's the reason that he can't be God? Well, because he's not living up to my expectations of what God is supposed to act like. He can't be the one if he's not living up to what I think he's supposed to be living up to. Is he the one? Well, how can he be the one when he's not doing any of the things that I expected the one to do? How can he be the one if I'm sitting here in this awful situation for condemning Herod's sinful lifestyle and he's not rescuing me from it? How can he possibly be the one? By the way, Why was John even condemning Herod in the first place? Have you ever stopped and asked that question when you read through this story? Have you ever wondered that? What did that have to do with his mission? What did that have to do with what he was supposed to be doing with preparing the way for Jesus? Well, his expectation was that Jesus was supposed to come and overthrow Herod and all the pagan rulers of the day, so now that John had done his job preparing the way in the wilderness with the baptism leading to, to repentance and all the religious people repented, it, it must be time to go and prepare the way politically and culturally too. Luke 3.19, when, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, he married his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. Where do we see in any of the Gospels that, that Jesus told John to condemn Herod? If it does, I don't, I don't know it anywhere. Do any of the prophecies speak about John doing this? Not that I know of. I can't see them anywhere. Maybe they're there and I don't know it, but if they're there, you can tell me later. I'd be happy to know. But it seems to me that he was acting on his expectation of what Messiah was supposed to be instead of on Jesus' revelation. Why he did it, I don't know, but he did it any, anyway. I don't know if he was led by the Spirit to confront Herod or if it was just what he thought he was supposed to do. It's not in the text, so we can't deduce it from the text. But what we do know is that somehow John's faith in Jesus as the Messiah had been tripped up because of his current situation. And when his situation didn't match his expectation, John got tripped up by Jesus. How about us? Do we ever get tripped up by Jesus? This has everything to do with how we respond in those moments where our idea of Jesus doesn't mesh up with Jesus' idea of Jesus. When our expectation of Jesus doesn't line up with the revelation of who Jesus is. When we let ourselves get swept into the gossip and the slander from an unbelieving world about Jesus and God and his grace and truth, without even realizing it, we find ourselves taking the attempts of an unbelieving world to decipher the mysteries of God as actual representations of who God is. We shouldn't allow anyone to tell us who God is other than God. We shouldn't let anyone tell us what God looks like if they can't see. Jesus is not who the world says he is. God is not who the world says he is. Truth is not what the world says it is, neither is grace, authority, or power. There is truth behind each and every, every one of those words and statements, but the world cannot see it. They are blind to it. Their eyes are closed to it. But not only that, we as believers do not yet have a full understanding of who God is. We're living in a now and a not yet world. Yes, God has revealed himself to us. When he opens the eyes of our hearts, we're able to see him in ways that unbelievers can't. We have more and more revelation now than we've ever had. And yet, we don't stand in God's presence where he himself is the light. We are not standing in a world free from the effects of sin and the curse. We are not yet surrounded by a cloud of witnesses of all the nations too great to be numbered. While we know a lot, we don't yet know everything. But 
We cannot allow what we don't know about Jesus to trip us up about Jesus. We can't allow what we don't know about Jesus to trip us up about Jesus. We say, if I just knew this, or if God would just do that, then I'd believe. But Jesus says, blessed are those who don't stumble on account of me. Don't let what you don't know about Jesus trip you up for believing in Jesus. This isn't the only beatitude that Jesus gave John chapter 20, verse 29, now that Thomas believes because he was able to touch Jesus' scars after the resurrection, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed. We can't allow what we don't know about Jesus to trip us up about Jesus So what did Jesus say to John's disciples? He said, go back and report to John everything that you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Tell John what you have seen and heard. What you have seen and heard. What had they seen? Well, they had seen blind people be able to see again. They had seen paralyzed people be able to walk again. They'd seen dead people come back to life. They'd seen people dying from debilitating diseases be made clean. They'd seen deaf people be able to hear. They had seen some amazing things. All things that if any of us were to see them today would amaze us all. But it wasn't just what they had seen that they were supposed to pass on to John. They were supposed to pass on what they heard. And what did they hear? They heard the good news being proclaimed to the poor. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What is Jesus telling John through his disciples? Go back and tell John what you have heard. Go back and tell John how you've heard the one who is truth preaching the truth. Go back and tell John how you've heard the one who is grace preaching grace. Go back and tell John what you've heard. You've seen the evidence with your eyes that he is the Messiah. You've heard the truth with your ears. Now believe it in your heart. Do we believe in our hearts? Or do we just agree with our minds? Have we not seen enough and heard enough to have faith in Jesus? How much more do we need? Why do we let ourselves keep getting tripped up by what we don't know? Do we let ourselves keep getting tripped up by the gap between who we think God is and how God is supposed to act and how we have seen him act? You know what, I believe while this gap is going to be constantly shrinking in our lives, the gap will always be there this side of eternity. That gap between who God is and how we have seen him act and how we expect him to act will probably never go away until we're standing in his presence. And what we have to decide, which, by the way, is why it's called faith, is that this gap is not going to keep us from Jesus. The gap should not keep us from Jesus. The gap may always be there, but at some point, our faith in the one who's on the other side of the gap must change how we see the gap. Don't let the gap keep you from experiencing Jesus in in your life today, where you are right now. Don't let this gap keep you from knowing God who sent his son to die for you. Don't let the gap trip you up. Don't let the gap stand between you and faith and instead receive the blessing of Jesus. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not get tripped up by their own idea of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Is your idea of Jesus tripping you up? Is it keeping you from meeting the real Jesus? Is it keeping you from knowing the God who sent his son to die on the cross to make a way across the gap, to give in his own flesh and blood, in his own life, in his own death, in his own resurrection, exactly what we needed so that we could go across that gap and stand in the presence of the almighty God and stand in presence of the one who died to save us. He has provided away. What's tripping us up? What's tripping you up? 
what's keeping you from meeting the real Jesus. This question God has been asking me, I don't think it's just for me. I think it's for all of us. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are we ready? There are probably a few areas that we need to address to be ready. I've got three areas that, that I want to point out really quickly, and we're about done. Are you ready? I'm going to ask the worship team, if they will, come up and join me. While you're sitting there, while we're sitting here in the presence of God, where two or three are gathered in his name, God is there with them. God is here in our midst right now. I do not read minds. I do not know what God has brought to your attention. But whatever God has brought up, he brought up because he wants to deal with it. Are you ready? First area I think we need to be ready in is this. Is there any doubt in your mind that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? We need to be ready. Church, we need to be ready. Whatever God is leading us into and wherever God is taking us, we need to be ready for it. And readiness begins with the gospel. Readiness begins with the gospel of peace. So is there any doubt in your mind that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Are you at peace in your relationship with God, or are you getting tripped up? Have you experienced that peace that passes understanding? Have you received God's gift of peace in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Because God doesn't give as the world gives. He gives for good. He plays for keeps. And he wants you to have this peace that passes understanding for keeps. Are you ready? Is there any doubt in your mind that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins? If you're settled on that, then maybe this is where we need to get ready. If he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then are there any sins in your life that you need him to take away? Is there any sin in your life or in my life that's keeping us from being ready for what God wants to do in and through us as his church at 6-8? If you have received this gift of grace, then the Lamb wants to take that sin away. Now in this moment, don't get tripped up by all the confusing processes that have been laid out to you over the years about how to receive forgiveness. The simple truth is Jesus wants to take away your sin. If you are in him, he's taken it away. In our church, we have been seeing Jesus take away sins over the past couple of months in a way that can only be explained as miraculous. God is actively taking away sins in our midst. And this is what I want you to hear. If you're worried about what's going to happen right now, don't worry, because the way he's doing it is in the most gracious way. It's not how we would respond to John the Baptist. It's how Jesus responded to John the Baptist. He's not condemning. He's setting people free. So there's no room for condemnation in the body of Christ. We don't do that here. If God wants to take away a sin in your life, we will respond with celebration and joy. We will rejoice with you that God is taking that away from you. Because being in Christ, being in Jesus, is so much more significant and so much more important than the effects of sin in your life. And this sin is the residual effect of the curse that we're all under, that the whole world is under, and we're all susceptible to it, and we live in a world where we are more and more surrounded by it, but that doesn't excuse it. God still wants to remove it 
Are you ready? Well, if there's no doubt in your mind that he's the lamb that takes away sins, and if, if there's no sin that he needs to deal with, then this last one that we all need to be ready for is, are you ready to prepare the way for him? Are you ready to do the work of John the Baptist and prepare the way for Jesus? Not in the confronting Herod kind of a way, but in a fruit in keeping with repentance kind of a way. What is this fruit that's in keeping with repentance that John preached about? It's when you have two shirts giving one that has none. It's giving food to those who don't have any. It's not taking more than you're supposed to. It's not manipulating people to get more out of them. Are you ready to prepare the way for him? Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6 through 9. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then, are you ready? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer you will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. Are you ready? Let's stand together this morning. As the worship team plays, I'm going to be standing down here in front. I'm going to ask Jim and Russ to come join us up here at the front as well. If you would like someone to pray with, if there's one of those three areas that you need him to be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, but you put your faith in him for the first time, we would like to pray with you. If you would like prayer for sin to be taken away, to be set free from the bondage of the slavery of sin, we want to pray for you. And if you feel like God is preparing you to prepare the way for him and you would like prayer, we want to pray for you as well. So we're going to take communion, and we'll all take communion together after the song. But while we're moving around, if you'd like prayer, come up and pray. We'll be happy to pray with you, and we'll join together as we follow God into where he's leading